Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Forma here on the Circe Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and normally you would be getting ready to listen to an interview that I conducted with somebody, such as last week's episode with Dr. Christopher Perrin. But in this week's episode, we're going to bring you an interview that Andrew Kern did with our friend Susan Weisbauer. You might know her from the Well-Trained Mind over at welltrainedmind.com, or uh, you might know her from one of her several books, including the best-selling Books, the Story of the World, that's a series, the History of the World series, The Well-Trained Mind, and The Well-Educated Mind, among other works. She has a new book coming out called Rethinking School, How to Take Charge of Your Child's Education. And she and Andrew Kern sat down to discuss this book, uh, to discuss the ways we do school now, like where that came from and why it doesn't work for so many people and some of the ways that parents are looking for options, whether they're homeschoolers or conventional schoolers, to adapt to what is going on in those schools. Uh, They talked about what to do for kids for whom the system wasn't designed, kids who maybe they're smart, but they just don't fit into a traditional school, or maybe they have a learning disability, or any number of other things going on in their lives that just make it difficult for them to participate in school the way we think of it now, the the way it's run now. Um, and they talked about um, some, of the, some of the answers that uh, Susan Weisbauer presents in her new book. She writes that the rule of thumb is that when a child is struggling in school, the problem probably lies with the school or the system and not with the child, which, of course, is not how we often think about it right now. And she notes that the K-12 system with its rigid rules of advancement and endless testing doesn't work for all children. So she shows in this book how to opt out of many things, from the SATs and other tests to any number of other things that are typically thought of as required. And she, ta- she shows how to opt out of those things without harm to your child's college chances. Parents will find a comforting clarity and sanity in this book and hopefully in this interview as well. This book, Rethinking School, is coming out in January. It's coming out through Norton, and you can find out more information over at www.norton.com or at susanwisebauer.com. You can also find Susan at Susan Wise Bauer on Twitter. That's Susan Wise and then B-A-U-E-R. 
So Susan Weisbauer, and that's on Twitter. All right, without further ado, I will kick it over to Andrew Kern's interview with Susan Weisbauer. Enjoy, and we'll talk to you next time. Hi, Susan. This is Andrew Kern calling. How are you? I am well, Andrew, and it's so good to talk to you. It's been too long. It has been too long, Susan. And 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 um, just so everybody who's listening knows, the Susan, of course, is Susan Weisbauer. And Susan has a new book out called Rethinking School, How to Take Charge of Your Ch- Child's Education. And I'm using that as an excuse to catch up with her. <laughs> so, Susan, hello. It's good to talk with you again. And like you said, it has been too long. How have things been going for you? <laughs> uh, well, as a busy as usual, um, I've been doing actually a lot of uh, talking to journalists um, and other you know outlets about rethinking school. The book really seems to have hit a chord with a lot of people. Um, it's a funny thing about being a writer. You're always uh, you're, you're doing publicity for the book you finished more than a year ago while you're working on the next one. And the book that you finished more than a year ago sometimes kind of seems like old news to you because you really want to talk about the one you're working on now, but nobody knows anything about that. So um, I'm currently working on the next volume of the History of the World series for Norton. Oh, good. And uh, yeah, that's that's keeping me very busy. How many volumes have you developed on that history of the world? I've done three volumes so far. I did. I, I originally was going to do it along the lines of the Story of the World series, which is which is for kids, which is published by Well Trained Mind Press, my publishing company, which would have been ancient, medieval, basically Renaissance, and then modern. Um, but this series is taking a little bit of a different path. I've done three volumes, so it was ancient, medieval, and Renaissance. But the Renaissance volume didn't really deal with what's called the quote-unquote high Renaissance, which essentially just means Italy. So it dealt with the worldwide Renaissance, but not what most people think of when they hear the word Renaissance. So from this point on, I think the volumes are going to be shorter. They're going to be a little bit more thematic, you know, as Mm. opposed to here's what's happening all around the world everywhere. And a little bit more, let's follow a few major themes through world history. And wow. uh, they're going to cover less time. So what was originally going to be a four-volume series is now going to be a multi-volume series. All right. I have, to, I have to ask you, what makes the Renaissance in Italy so important that it gets its own book? Oh, it doesn't get its own book, and I don't think it's that important. Um, <laughs> I think it's a, it's a, it is a... Um, it is a, it's an important to um, certain aspects of Western philosophy and culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not getting its own book from me, the period during which the high Renaissance happens in Italy, which is to say if, well, I mean, I'm taking it from 1453 to about 1605. The period is an incredibly important one worldwide. And that's what my book is about. But the the Renaissance in Italy is a small part of that. Um, it's important, I think, to us because it's a time when Westerners begin to articulate the philosophy of what it means to be human mm. um, apart from theology. So not simply human because we're made in the image of God, but what does it mean to be human without necessarily referencing theology? That's something that we're still trying to do. And um, what I find really fascinating about this particular period is that while much of Europe was trying to articulate what it means to be human, um, much of Europe was also indulging in a massive entry into the slave trade 
And those two things happen together. Um, that I find fascinating. There are so many things going through my mind right now. One of which is I completely agree with the way you've just framed it, that f since around 1453, we've been trying to figure out a way to be human without God. Mm -hmm. Machiavelli, I think, mm -hmm. was the first person, maybe you can correct me on this, but I think he was the first person to write a political treatise that that doesn't regard politics as something under the law of God. Where yeah. I mean, he mentions God, but as I understand it, as I recall, his mentioning of God is here's how you as a ruler can use God to to sort of get your way or, yeah. you know, influence people. I'm not sure I'd say I, I'm always very cautious about saying this was the first because someone will sure. always pop up who has done research in a much more specialized field than yours and say, well, actually. But I think he's certainly the most. um widely read. And I, I think we can say he was the first influential, widely influential thinker to articulate that. Hmm. And yeah, I mean, Machiavelli was a pragmatist. So much of what you see happening between about 1450 and 1600 has to do with pragmatism. We're going to pay lip service to humanism. Everybody always talks about humanism as one of these great values of the Italian Renaissance. We will... Um, articulate what it means to be human, but only to the point that it gets in the way of our primary obsessions, which are to be safe, to be um, comfortable, and if at all possible, to be wealthy. It's uh, the more things change. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the other thing that relates to that is 1453. Yes. So for me, I actually um, believe 1453 marks the end of the world. Hmm. <laughs> Not literally, of course, but I'm wondering why 1453? Well, um... So 1453, of course, for those of you who have not recently read the history of the Renaissance world, which you should have, uh, is the fall. We say the fall. Uh, if you're in the Muslim world, it's not the same word. It is the, uh, the capture of Constantinople by the Ottoman Turks under uh, Mehmet II. And the, the destruction of Constantinople as a center of Western culture had... Uh, at least like three major sort of ripple effects that change history. And the first is that in a really um, profound way, it was the end of the Roman dream, the Roman dream that people could be united with this sort of um, this uh, a political allegiance that they would hold to even when they held a differing points of view. Constantinople um, was the last holdout of the Roman empire. And when it was gone, and in an incredibly long uh, period of history in which people tried to unite around a political idea ended. That's the first thing. Second thing that happened was that the West had to say, oh, actually, there's a whole other big world out there to the East, and they might be more powerful than we are. No one really believed that, I don't think, up until the point that Constantinople fell. Um, but when that... Are you including... Are, are you including... Sorry about that. Are you including Constantinople then as, as a Western city at that point? Or, or Yes. Uh, okay. Yes. No, I mean, I know. Okay. So there are Greek speakers and there's tons of Eastern influence in Constantinople, but Constantinople was a Western city. Okay. It was uh, at least nominally Christian. It had strong ties to the Greek and Roman Western traditions, and it was an outpost of Rome. So 
that's that's how I'm looking at it. You could probably make an argument the other direction, but that's the one that I find the most convincing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You've totally thrown me off my one, two, three structure here, Andrew. Sorry, sorry. Where you're on I? your third. You're on your third ripple. Oh, right. Um, so the third ripple is that Constantinople had been for centuries, maybe eight, nine hundred years, um, a trading hub. So if you're going from west to east and you go east to west, you have to go through Constantinople as part of the trade route. And when Constantinople fell into the hands of a power hostile to the west, it uh, put this extra energy behind the need to find another way to get to the east other than going overland. You know, you go through the Mediterranean, through Constantinople, and you start on the Silk Road to the east. So the Portuguese had already begun exploring down the coast of Africa, but if Constantinople hadn't fallen, the quest to find a way around Africa and to go all the way to the east would not have had the same urgency. And from that um, impulse also then sprang the impulse to go in the other direction because it was a really long ways to go around Africa to get to the east. So the reason why we started going west was to see if there was an easier way. Um, could we maybe get to it by going around the world? So the fall of Constantinople really um, uh, opened the door to, uh, you know, circling the globe, which of course is one of the things that changed history for us. Sure. That's oh, I have, a great, I have a great example for you. Can I give it to you? Yeah, please. All right. So there's a, a very famous map by Fra Mauro. Uh, he's he's this, this great medieval map maker. And he was finishing up this map right around the time that Constantinople fell. And what's important about this map is the orientation. In most previous medieval and Renaissance maps, um, they weren't oriented to the north. Uh, Orienting a map so that the north is at the top is a relatively recent phenomenon. Interesting. They were always oriented towards the east. So what was at the top of the map were the holy sites, Jerusalem, Nazareth, Bethlehem, and then usually the, the Garden of Eden was on there somewhere. So the east was at the top of the map. When Fra Mauro did his map, which is this gorgeous, elaborate, you can, if you go on the British Museum website, you can see some great shots of it. Do you know what was at the top of this map? It was Africa. Interesting. Why Africa? Because the world was reorienting towards the trade routes that went to the south. Yeah. Now, as I recall, that's around the time when when the 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 Western African Empire of of Ghana was it was at its peak. Does that sound familiar? So I think the African empires at that point, actually, the strongest one was the Songhai were actually gathering strength. Um, the Empire of Mali was fading a little bit. Okay. Um, yeah, but Songhai was probably the strongest one. Where was that based? Um, around the Senegal River. Okay, so that that that. Um, yeah, so right off the western the, coast, western, and then upward. yeah, and then as time goes on, um, then the Portuguese explore on around you know the bulge of Africa down to the the southern shore of that westward bulge, uh, which they called Guinea. But that that's where all the action was. What what this conversation has sort of illustrated for me is a point that I was going to make anyway, and that is that you have an amazing capacity for research. And 
I, w- I wanted, before we got into talking about your book, which all of this is an easy transition into your book because you said around the Renaissance, people started thinking, how can we you know, have this humanism without God or how can we achieve how can we achieve this new world without looking to theology? And it seems to me that that's still the context in which you were writing your book. And your book is a response to some of the, the practical problems that arise from that. I'll, I'll call it fragmented mind for now. Um, but, but before we got to that, I wanted to talk about you a little bit and your life story. And I know that, for example, you were homeschooled as a child. Mm-hmm. I know that you then went to college very young and that after you graduated from college, you became a professor mm-hmm. at William and Mary and you've written quite a few books. In fact, I have, I have in front of me pictures of the books that you've written and it's multiple pages here. And what, what becomes so clear is that you have an incredible knack for research I mean, you, you've written about things, the story of Western science, mm-hmm. the art of the public grovel. Yes. Those are rather different. And you even have a writing program, which makes sense. Writing with ease. Yes. Um, and writing with skill. And with skill. Thank you. Now, was the first book that you had published your well-educated um, or well, well-trained mind? Well, oddly, no. Uh, before The Well-Trained Mind, I had written two novels. Um, no kidding. Yes. Um, please don't go and look them up. Sometimes <laughs> juvenilia should be allowed to die. But I had published two novels, and I was actually looking at a contract for three more novels when my agent said to me, you know, this is fine, but it's not going to really ever pay that much. Um, why don't you write some more about education? Because, Mm. you know, he knew I had been home educated and my kids were being homeschooled and he had kids who were in the New York City school system. So uh, that was the point at which I decided, okay, let me, let me, uh, I need to work out a plan for what I'm going to do with my own kids anyway. Let me go back and put together an outline for what my mother did with us growing up. And she and I uh, collaborated on The Well-Trained Mind. So that was the first nonfiction book that I did uh, for W.W. Norton. And that was a collaboration with your mother. Mm-hmm. There's an argument for homeschooling. Yes, indeed. Oh, we had such a wonderful time. And yeah, we've, we've, uh, we worked together for many, many years about, oh, see, my mother's turning 80 this year. So about 10 years ago, I said to her, mom, you don't have to travel anymore. <laughs> Only mm-hmm. do what you want to from this point on. So uh, she has mostly been gardening and keeping her chickens recently. Oh, wonderful. Um, but we, we had, we had a good, we had a good 15 years where we worked and traveled together. How long ago did you write that book? The first edition? The the first edition came out, I believe in 1999. No kidding. Yeah. That does make sense though. Cause, cause I remember seeing it a long time ago, relatively speaking. Relatively speaking. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Relative to my life. Yes. And how many editions has it been through now? Uh, It's in its fourth edition now. Well done. Yeah. Always new resources coming out. So. Isn't it amazing? Fascinating. Okay, let me follow that up. Compared to 1999, give, mm-hmm. me a, give me a sort of bird's eye view of what has become possible and available to the homeschooler. 
The internet. The internet. What's okay. That? So um, in 1999, when that first edition came out, I remember doing publicity for it and uh, some reporter called me and I said, oh, the book has a website. And she said, oh yeah, so many people are doing that now. <laughs> Now, now it's Bitcoin. Right. So many people are doing Bitcoin now. <laughs> that's right. I, I haven't gone that far yet. So, um, yeah, so that's the biggest thing. I think uh, there's so many resources now that we can access. Mm. Um, there's wonderful, wonderful teaching available online. Um, if I could do a tiny plug, we, the Well-Trained Mind Academy, we have live online instruction by teachers who have PhDs who are teaching your middle and high school students and grading their papers and having office hours. And the only thing that changes is just the delivery system. So there's such a great opportunity now for homeschooled students to take live classes from great teachers Mm. Um, and a, a great opportunity for parents to put together these courses into, you know, sort of a schooling experience that makes sense for their kid. It's it's really such a big change. When, when I was being homeschooled and I had to take a course that my mother had no expertise in, I took it by correspondence right. from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, which meant that my I, I read things and then I filled out papers and I put them in the mail. <laughs> I remember that. And eventually they came back again with things written on them. So um, you can definitely learn that way, but... I think the online platform, uh, it just opens up so much to students. But Susan, is that homeschooling if they're taking classes online? Of course it's homeschooling. I'm hearing the objections. Oh, well, so arguments about what is and isn't genuine, whether it's homeschooling or classical education Uh or... I don't know Christianity. <laughs> um, sure, let's have them. It helps us all to clarify our points of view. Um, it helps us to figure out for ourselves what's important about what we're doing and what's peripheral. But as parents, what we are all trying to do is to help our children discover what they're supposed to do, what they're called to do what they're good at, what they need to work at, who they are as human beings. If you're a parent who is intimately and deeply involved in that in your child's life, then you should feel the freedom to use whatever resources come to hand without someone else looking down their nose at you and saying, well, you are not really an ex. That's a terribly damaging external view on what you're doing. Yeah, I, I I like that way of putting it. I I think my sort of the controlling metaphor of my mind when it comes to thinking about anything is the parable of the two brothers, uh, mm. more, more commonly known as the prodigal son. Um, however, I've come to the conclusion that it's called that because it was named by the older brother. Mm. Um, I think in terms of how the we we have within us these two dynamics. One is a dynamic toward stability, toward obedience, toward pleasing. The other is the dynamic toward movement, toward change, toward um, exploring. And this applies to, to everything we do. It's the one and the many. It's the, it's, maybe it's because it's the Holy Trinity, right? Maybe it's, it's the, yeah. the two brothers need to be one 
in the father. Perhaps that's that's why. I, I don't know why. But but any issue that I think about, I find that it's very helpful for me to draw back to that and ask, okay, if I'm being the older brother here, what am I doing? Because remember in the parable, the older brother is not good, right? He's obedient, but he's not good. Right. And the younger brother is not good either, but the difference is he comes home. Hmm. So then my question becomes to myself, what would I do about this issue? Let's say homeschooling, if I'm the older brother. I would define it. I would make sure everybody does it the way I say. I yeah. would have rules and regulations that govern it. What if I'm the younger brother? I would just whatever I want, right? I would I guess I guess the to caricature um people who are inclined toward the unschooling approach would be more like the older brother and people who are inclined more toward doing exactly what was done in school with, you know, the 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 um, conventional school approach would be more like the older brother. I don't yeah. want to pin either one, but my point is that it's very easy as humans, it's very easy to fall into one of those dichotomies. But you in your book talk about homeschool styles. That, and I'm talking now about your newest, well, what is for us your newest book, the Rethinking School book. Do you remember the, the three different homeschooling styles you mentioned there? Yes, actually, I can't. I, I I know I gave them particular names, but there's sort of you know the there's school at home where basically you're you're following the traditional paradigm. You're just moving the place where you do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, there's I don't know. Okay, I don't. I should have. Should the book I tell you? I, I have. It. I can. I can tell you okay, what you said. <laughs> tell me what the, Tell me what I named them because these are very okay. familiar uh, things for me. But I, I you know. Can't remember exactly what name I used. It's more important to know the thing than the name, isn't it? It okay. kind of is. So here's what you called them. You you had a section in and in, in, interesting. The chapter was called "Opting Out," and I want to just say yeah. that this book was not specifically about homeschooling. No. What, what this was about was rethinking school. It's very right. aptly named, subtitled "How to Take Charge of Your Child's Education." So the notion there is, as I understand it, you're the parent. This is your responsibility. Fulfill it. Right. And and so when you get to the fifth part, which you called opting out, then this mm -hmm. is for people who who don't want to have their children in, in a public or even private school. You you then list three homeschooling styles. So in that context, here's the names you used. Home organized schooling, mm -hmm. conventional school at home mm -hmm. and non-traditional homeschooling. Right. Right. Can you describe right. each of those? Yeah. So home home organized schooling is where. Your kid is not fitting into the classroom. It doesn't matter what you do, or what you try. Um, but, you know, you're not necessarily anxious to buck the whole system. So rather than throwing the whole thing over and starting from scratch, you think, all right, my kid has to have fifth grade math. I'll get a tutor to do that. Okay, my kid has to have fifth grade history. I'll enroll them in an online school to do that. Okay, my ha kid has to do fifth grade science. Let me take them over here into this co-op to do that. So you're basically following the pattern of, whatever school you have pulled them from, but you're figuring out ways to fulfill each one of those requirements in a way that suits your kid without questioning the requirements themselves too much. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Right. So then, then the, then the, okay, give me the name for the next one. No. <laughs> Con conventional school at home. You're so helpful. Conventional school at home. Here again, you're not necessarily questioning the entire system. You're like, okay, there's 12 grades. Um, there's seven subjects. 
Uh, the kid's got to have a complete high school transcript. We've got to do two years of foreign language. You might tinker a little bit more with when you do these things. You might choose to do them in blocks. You might choose to fulfill some of these requirements in a non-traditional manner. You might, um, you might choose a non-traditional type of learning for some of them. But essentially, you're still going to do the K through 12, and you are still aiming towards a traditional four-year college at the end of it. You're just um, having a little more flexibility in how you organize the enterprise overall. Okay. That's conventional homeschooling. It is conventional. Okay. It's conventional school at home. Okay. Yes. So then the third one is non-traditional homeschooling. Yeah. That's when you say, actually, nothing's really working right now. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> What's a completely different way to do this? Hmm. Maybe we'll go to a foreign country for a year <laughs> and the kid won't do any school, but they'll learn how to speak a foreign language. I read an, I read an article yesterday. I think it was in a New Zealand newspaper, a UK news universe, uh, sorry, England, English newspaper about mm -hmm. a family of nine that found mm -hmm. it was cheaper to travel the world and thus educate their children than it was to stay home and do a conventional homeschool or school. They actually found it cheaper to travel the world. That's really interesting. Isn't I believe it. I mean, I, I, I think that that's fantastic. Um, it, it, the non-traditional means that you're thinking to yourself, why do we have 12 grades? Why do we have seven subjects? Right. Is a four-year university degree really the end of what I want to do with this particular kid? Is it really what the kid is going to prosper from the most? What are, what, is, what are several of the thousand and one ways in which a child can grow up and find who they're supposed to be? Right. Maybe I'll try another one. You know, what strikes me about the, the non-traditional is that by instinct, that's more my inclination, maybe because I'm a third born, I don't know. But I'm, I'm more inclined to, to you know, challenge something to its roots and, and want to find out, is this actually fulfilling some purpose? But that it really surprises me, Andrew. You should talk a little more about that. Well, first, I'm intrigued by why that surprises you. So since this is all about me, like everything else is. Of course. Why does that surprise you? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I guess I've always seen you as, a, a you know, well, I guess people are going to say, say the same thing about me after this book comes out. More of a voice for traditionalism. Well, see, I would draw a distinction here between tradition and convention. Ah, very good point. Talk about that for a minute. Okay. That's interesting. Okay. So I, I don't regard the, the conventional school as school is done now in America as traditional, but people will That's say That's a very good point. It's, it's radically new. It's now you used the term earlier pragmatism to define the 15th and 16th century, mm -hmm. but it's in the 20th century that pragmatism becomes capital P pragmatism with a philosophy. Right. And, and American education is to the extent that it can be the application of pragmatism to training children. Now, mm -hmm. well, you, the word I use in the book actually is <laughs> about our school system. Our K through 12 system is Prussianized. I agree. Yeah. yeah the, the Prussian method of dividing kids into age graded classrooms is the most pragmatic decision you could possibly make. I think you also at one point call it factory based or quoted somebody doing that saying that. Yes. And I yes. think, I, I, let me just add, there, there's five parts to this book 
And in the first part, it's called the system. Part one is a system. And there's a chapter called the way we do school. And uh-huh. that's where you write about the Prussian system and uh-huh. respond to it. And I think, I think that's an extremely helpful chapter because, because what people can forget, especially because we're in it, right? We're swimming in this water. We don't realize that this is a very unusual pond, pretty stagnant, that had never, ever been attempted prior to the 19th century. And so that's mm-hmm. why I call it conventional. It is it is the conventional way of doing things because it's what we do. Um, I mean, yeah. we could get into why we do that. But I don't think we can escape it without thinking about why we do it this way. Or let me rephrase that, without thinking about whether there's another way to do it. So in this sense, I am a traditionalist in the sense that for over 2,000 years, Education was uh, an extremely diverse practice, a set of practices. Um, No two schools in the Middle Ages, for example, did things exactly the same. Um, Some of the best schools were were cathedral schools where you might have had one or two teachers and a dozen 15, 20 students who were aged 7 and 21 studying the same things on on a given day. Because they they based it on, really, they based it, if the modern school, if the conventional school is based on the factory, then my contention would be that the medieval or the classical school is based more on the apprenticeship. Right. And since what we're after is mastery, then the apprenticeship model works better. I would also add that even the apprenticeship model probably springs from something even higher, which I would call discipleship, because I'm clever with words. And when you look at uh, Plato and you look at Jesus, of course, and you look at the ancient schools, if they, they were either oriented toward mastering a trade, which would then be an apprenticeship, or they were oriented toward mastering wisdom. And, and in that case, it's a, it's a discipleship. So I would right. say that there's three basic models of education that flow through world history, that, and, and every culture too. There's, there's, I'll call it wisdom education, you know, because every culture has its wisdom literature. China has Confucius and the Tao and so on. Africa has the, and by the way, every culture has its fairy fairy tales and fables that really are the introduction to their wisdom literature, which is why I don't like very many books written for children now. Um, But every culture has a wisdom literature and you're discipled into that. And then every culture has what I'm going to call, for lack of a better term, a patriotic literature. And that's sort of a middle ground. It's traditional, but it tends to be tradition ending with the tribe or with the tradition itself. And I would consider that Phariseeism if it's if it ends with that. And then the third option would be pragmatism or sophistry. And that's where your goal is to, as you put it before, to be comfortable and maybe wealthy. Um, how to make friends and influence people would be a good example of this. And a vocational in the sense of orienting education toward a job. I would contend that every culture in the history of the world, if it got anywhere, had those three things um, all available to the to the um, citizenry or whatever we want to call them. And what I'm arguing for and what I'm contending for is all three, that that we need to actually live in the circumstances where we're planted, which requires wisdom, it requires virtue, and it requires prudence. And it's pragmatic in the small p, honest sense. It's genuinely pragmatic because it considers the question, okay, if I gain the whole world but lose my soul, did it do me any good? 
I also believe in tradition because I believe that the tradition contains the wisdom of the of the race, whether that mean you know the local community, the race in the old sense, or whether that mean the human race. But if it ends at itself, that's a problem. It needs to point to something beyond, and that's what I mean by by the wisdom literature. So that's right. what I'm. That's what I believe in is that all three of them are contained in wisdom, um, but they're not all contained in tradition, and not and only one is contained in pragmatism. So that's what I mean when I say there's a difference between conventional and traditional education. But ultimately, right. even tradition is not enough. Truth itself has to be the object. Yeah. Well, I mean, convention, because we are, because our days are but four score and seven, right. um, if that convention for us is always intensely modern, convention for us is what makes sense to us now and has always made, made sense to us, which in a historical sense is an incredibly brief period of time. Hmm. So hmm. I, I, I agree with you. I mean, one of the advantages to doing history is that you're constantly, you know, smacked in the head with what is not actually um, traditional that you may have thought of as traditional. Yes. No, actually, people didn't do it this way until just recently. Exactly. And and that's why when I get in discussions with people about schooling, very often they will say, I just went to, I just do it like a traditional classroom. And, and right. I'm kind of obnoxious, so I'll frequently say, uh, no, not like a traditional. You do it like a conventional classroom. And often, as soon as I say that, they go, oh, yeah. Sometimes they punch me, but generally speaking, they say, oh, I see what you mean, because it's a big difference. Well, and let me then circle back around to your question about, well, is that really homeschooling if you're using an online class? There's this, has become now this, among many people, this definition of homeschooling, which is eh, maybe 30 years old, but has already, you know, attained this canonical status. Well, you're not homeschooling unless you are doing everything yourself at home, only you. And I always want to say using a Becca because, right. <laughs> you know, that that's, that's the era from which your definition is coming. Mm -hmm. um, to, to criticize someone for, because, because they're using online resources and saying, well, you're not really homeschooling is to take a definition, which is no more than 25 years old. And to use it to define an entirely um, new set of opportunities. So that's just another example of how quickly. Thank you for putting it that way. Yeah, conventional becomes quote unquote tradition. Correct. Yeah, that's well said. And I love that phrase you just used, a new set of opportunities. I, there's a lot of bemoaning the way things are going in, in our culture. And people like me probably lead the way on bemoaning because I like to complain. But what I can easily forget is that we live in a world of opportunities unparalleled. And what drove this home for me is my daughter, Larissa, just had a baby in July. And Congratulations. Thank you. And the, the baby was born breech. And you hate to even think a thought like this, but mm -hmm. 100 years ago, neither the baby nor the mother would have survived it. Not even 100 years ago, 50 years ago, I would have died with my first baby mm. because of the complications. Mm. And maybe even 30 years, well, I hope not 30 since he's 26, but 50 years ago, very mm. likely. Um, so let's, let's look at, let's look at, I'll tell you one thing about, I would say, let's look at the opportunities, not bemoan what is past. One thing about doing world history is it makes it really, really hard to talk about the good old days. Right. I mean, 
not really hard. It makes it inconceivable to talk about the good old days. I mean, let's just even circle back around to education. And, you know, in my book, I bash Prussianized schooling pretty hard um, and talk about, you know, how, you know, children are, are channeled into grades by age and given a set curriculum. And one teacher is supposed to teach them all the same thing at the same time. And as you said, in the cathedral schools, there's a very different model where you've got a teacher supervising 12 students from age seven to 21, and the focus is on mastery. You know why we can't have cathedral schools now? No, seriously, as a, I'm, we could have individual cathedral schools, but why as a nation we can't have cathedral schools? <laughs> well, our secularity, but also I would guess because there's too many people we have to educate. Because we are educating all, we are trying to educate everyone. And right. we always have to remember when we're looking at the medieval system that the, the, the subset of society that got to even go to a cathedral school was maybe the top 15%, and that's generous. Mm. As yeah. an industri- Western industrial nation, we have made a commitment to offering, and here again, we're talking about opportunity, mm. offering opportunity to everyone, not just to the top 15%. It's hard to do medieval and Renaissance history and not see the millions and millions of people who never learned to read because they were never given the opportunity to go to even a cathedral school, Mm. never got out of the fields, never got out of the kitchen, never got to be more than a scullery maid. And that's not a tradition that we can return to. So I like I do. I bash the Prussian system. I bash age graded classrooms. I say that if you can think of a way to to free your child from this system, you should absolutely take it. Hmm. Now, what I don't deal with in the book, um, although I'm on the board of several organizations that are trying to find ways to deal with this is, okay, but what about the kids whose parents can't do that? Right. What's our responsibility towards them? And certainly, I mean, I am a Christian, you're a Christian. The, I'm hoping that my book will be helpful to a wide um, you know, subsection of parents, even those who don't identify with my Christian faith. But you and I as Christians can never forget that part of our call is to take care of the disenfranchised. Absolutely. So we can't just talk about cathedral schools and how great they were. We've got to be part of bringing a non-Prussianized opportunity for education to more people. Right. We have to, because the opportunity is there, we need to think very carefully about how we can bring it to everybody. I I mean, two things, again, my mind goes in two directions, but the first is how incredibly grateful I am for the internet because I want to get a classical education. I'm 54 Mm -hmm. years old. When I was about 43, 44 years old, I was on the verge of crying to Martin Cothran, our mutual friend over the telephone, because I couldn't learn Latin. I didn't have time to do book Latin. Right. And, and that was all at the time that was available. In the last six or seven years, I've made incredible progress because I found a couple of sources online where you can just listen. And so right. when, I, when, I'm, uh, when I'm going for a walk, when I'm doing the dishes, when I'm cutting the lawn, when I'm driving... I'm I'm constantly able now to listen to Latin. And the progress that I've made in that is is unbelievable. And I'm I can't express how grateful I am. In the Middle Ages, I would have been 
that scullery maid, or in my case, what would you call it, scullery servant, who who probably, well, actually, I probably would have been in Slovenia. Been out in the barn. The guys go out in the barn. Uh huh. And 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 my ancestors on my dad's side were um, alm doodlers, as they're called overseas, the hillbillies, ah. uh, with vineyards in the um, Slovenian Alps. You know, it would have been beautiful, but I wouldn't have read much. Yeah. And and um, so so this is something. And, and also, I have another daughter, Katie, who's who's in Uganda right now, and she's teaching some kids who were orphaned off the streets. And this this drives it home so profoundly how we have an opportunity to nourish the souls of and minds of children everywhere in the world. And what we need to do is is not not you know there's boundaries of course to what we accept. Um, that lines that we can't cross, but but what we have to do is not feud about things within those lines, but to work together to bring this incredible grace we've received from our Lord into this whole world. And one of the things that that I'd love to talk with you about this sometime in another context. But one of the things that we're looking at here at Circe is what I'm calling a village school. Mm. You could even call it a parish school. And I, I believe I've come up with a way, if we if this could get funded, I believe I've come up with a way where you could have an amazingly cost-effective school with two teachers and about 50 kids without compromising any uh, education quality by digging deep into things like the cathedral schools and the Socratic schools and the traditions and looking at various um, various ways of rethinking school. That's one of the things that I've been trying to do for a long time. So I'm, I don't mean this to uh, to be now a, you know another side promotion, but to say a lot of people are thinking about this at Circe. It's one of the things we're trying to do, and God bless you for writing this book in that direction because I want to I want to go right directly to that um, to the book and its kind of thesis, if you like, because the title, as I I think said earlier, rethinking school. That's what we need to do, mm-hmm. and. We we there is there are a lot of people doing it, and you are one of the leaders of people doing that. So so let me ask you some sort of let me ask you some sort of um, classroom kind of style questions. Okay. Um, why did you write this book? <laughs> I wrote this book for I, there there were there are probably three separate streams that led to it. Um, one was the number of parents I spoke to all of the time who needed to have some option between let the school do it and homeschool. Right. You know, it, it, there, there's, there's a road for a lot of people um, that they need to travel down to get from one end to the other. And a lot of parents don't need to go all the way down to the homeschool. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I met so many parents who couldn't think their way through what was working and wasn't working because they'd been given this sort of, uh, you know, black and white choice. All Either you're in yeah. school or you're homeschooling. And that's just not the way life works. There are very few things in life that are that black and white. Um, And I wanted to offer all of those parents some ways to think through what was working and what wasn't working and what could actually be changed. You know, think about the individual things that can be changed and you'll get a better view of the whole solution. May may I interrupt you? Yeah. The the, the reason I want to is because Part two, you talked about mismatches. Mm-hmm. And in there, you you list, for example, three different kinds of struggles that kids have, three labels. Mm-hmm. You have a chapter about the gifted and the the gifted and the good. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then you actually have a chapter called the toxic classroom. Mm-hmm. In that section, you're you're getting very much into what you just said about, I guess, diagnosing. Part mm-hmm. three is taking control, but in part two, you're diagnosing. Let me rephrase that. You are giving diagnostic tools to mm-hmm. the parent, and I think that's one of the most valuable things in this book. Um, we parents love our children more than anybody else ever will. And when we see them struggle, it hurts us, especially, I mean, it hurts dads too, but let's face it, moms, generally speaking, have a more intimate bond having carried that child in the womb. Um, I don't want to exaggerate that, but, but moms tend to be so close to the children and feel the vibe coming off the child's soul much faster. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and they, and so they feel it to, to, to have diagnostic tools like you've provided is a great gift for those moms for and, and for any parents. Like I don't want to displace fathers. Please don't misunderstand me. Um, but for any parents to have those tools is so helpful. I wonder if you would mind. I don't want to stop you from talking about the three streams that led you to write the book. But but can you talk for just a moment about some of that? I'm using the term diagnostic tools, but but that whole section on mismatches. Can you talk right. about that for a minute? Right. Well, see, this is this is what happens. You know, our kids struggle and we get so caught up in the struggle that that it's hard for us to back off and look at what might be causing it. So in the book, I list a bunch of possible different mismatches, starting with and Let me just give you the most basic, Andrew, because our classrooms are are uh, are organized by grade. And this is true for, I would say, the majority of homeschoolers as well. We lose sight of a maturity mismatch. Our school system assumes that children, number one, mature at more or less the same rate. So a sixth grader does X amount and kind of work. And also that our kids mature across the board. So evenly, so that a sixth grader does sixth grade math, sixth grade literature, sixth grade spelling. This is so far from a biological truth, you know. And and sixth grade competition and behavior too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, kids, number one, don't mature evenly in relationship to each other. Mm-hmm. And number two, they don't mature evenly in their own selves. I mean, it, I, and I've spoken to so many parents who've got a kid that's doing second grade spelling, fifth grade math, ninth grade reading. And you know what they always want to know? What sort of remedial spelling should I do? Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, let's not look at that for the moment. You're assuming that the second grade spelling is abnormal. Let's look at what the kid is doing well, yeah. okay? Let's focus on that. But this assumption that there's got to be this maturity match is one of the most toxic that we have. Um, There can be, and often is, a mismatch between the way the child learns and the way that the material is presented. Now, I know everyone probably on some level knows this, but delivering information to someone, either verbally or in book form, and expecting them to absorb it is only one small part of the way that kids learn. It's propositional learning. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's important. Yes, we need to train kids in how to receive information in that way. But there are so many other ways that children learn. A child who is in a traditional classroom and is not primarily a propositional learner is going to struggle. Right. Right. Um, Absolutely. So those are just two. I mean, they're, 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 and, th- and then there are just... Um, processing differences, kids, (laughs) you can put five kids in front of something and have them all touch the same thing. 
And three of them will receive that information with as one set of sort of sensation, and two of them will receive it as another sort of sensation. Our brains process information differently. We hear differently. Uh, we process visual language differently. We we smell and hear differently. There are so many ways in which our organisms are, you know, beautifully and wonderfully and made and complicated and different. And a classroom can only present information in a very limited way. So there's a mismatch between the way the child senses the world and the way in which the teacher is presenting that information. And is so, this because of that Prussian industrial background? Partially. I mean, the, the Prussian industrial background, I think, tends to keep teachers from realizing how different all of these little kids are. You know, you've got 12 five-year-olds sitting in front of you. Mm -hmm. They're basically the same size. Hmm. They seem to be exhibiting the same amount of social maturity. It's very hard for you to realize how different each one of them is because they're presented to you as a, as a, as a lump as it were, you know. So in term, if I can put it this way, in terms of information that the teacher receives simply by observing the students, mm -hmm. it might be more informative for a teacher to, to look at 12 students who are different ages than to see 12 students who are the same age. I think it, I think it definitely would be. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan of multi-age classrooms, but Me here too. again, that takes a lot of training and resource that your local school may not necessarily have. Yeah, but think about that. I, I agree. I agree. But that's because the context makes it so hard. Yeah. You look at how much training and resources we put into this. I'm going to overstate maybe or else much step, express my opinion. You look at how much energy and resource and money we put into this um, unworkable system. Mm. It would be so much more efficient to put that money and energy and resources into a more workable system, a more natural system, whereas teachers are receiving, parents even are receiving from the students that they're teaching truly valuable information rooted in the notion that they're all very different and that that's good and that you can work with those differences. We can be misled, in other words, by the very structure of our classroom. Well, I, I would like to point out, um, before I start getting angry letters, that... <laughs> This is not a book about school reform mm -hmm. because I hear what you're saying, but that is, you know, forgive me. That is an easy thing to say Sure. with that. And, and I personally did not want to get involved with the, should we have a national education system? Should we have state education systems? Should there only be local education systems? What sort of standards should there be? How should it be funded? That, that is not something that I, first of all, feel qualified to speak to, or second, actually wanted to get embroiled in with this book. You know, with this book, I wanted to say to parents, look, here's the system we have. Right. Here are the places in which it is an irrational system, and you can push against it. Mm -hmm. And here's how to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know maybe, in, maybe in another 20 years, I'll feel empowered to write a here is the future of school reform book, although at the moment I don't feel it's likely. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, I understand. And I don't mean to be speaking sort of radicalism here. I, I mean to be as maybe as, a, as an intellectual model, a, a way of thinking about it, the sort of what if we could do this according to nature instead of oh. according to the way it's been given to us. Yeah. 
No, I, I totally understand that. I just don't want to get involved in what immediately become extremely politicized debates. Right. Yeah. Well, which side, which side in the political structure wants to keep things the way it is? I'm not finding those people. I, I don't. Yeah, I, I think that the system right now, it's just it's so big that it has become, you know, it's become like a Star Trek alien race that developed out of a couple little nanobots running around. And now it's a system that's so big that nobody can break it. Yeah, it's um, just there. Yeah, I, I don't see ill will in the system at all. Um, but it has certainly developed a life of its own. Mm, yeah, yeah. Error, maybe, but not ill will. Yeah. I'm in, I'm oh, yes. Well, it, all systems have error. Right. Right. So we have I, to I, we have to live I, in the world that we've been planted in. And, and, and we this is the world in which God is sanctifying us. And, and God is 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 you know, trans. He's not limited by the system that we're in. I was hoping that in this book, that one of the things that would happen is that and I say this continually, if you're homeschooling, you're still in the system, you mm. know. You still, just because you're homeschooling doesn't mean you've rethought the system. I wanted to make clear that the sort of the, um, the overall intellectual framework is what needs to be questioned, not yeah. just the institutional aspect of it. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure if I'm agreeing with that or qualifying that by, by, by this comment or statement or question. Do you think that the maturity mismatch in particular is enforced by... Um, inadequate or um, I'll I'll leave it at inadequate modes of assessment. Hmm. In other words, when we look at you talked about the the, the child who's spelling at second, doing math at fifth, and reading at ninth grade levels. Well, who says that second, fifth, and ninth grade? I I think it's I think I don't think it's inadequate modes of assessment. I think it's um, inadequate personnel staffing you don't you don't you, you can't have there's no kind of sort of assessment if you think of assessment as a tool that's going to um accurately evaluate a kid's maturity level that's a one-on-one -on -one thing right you know that's a person-to-person -person thing that's why you know bring this back to the book i say to the parent this is your job you're the one who's got to figure this out and that's an important point. Um, oh, that's such an important point. Because, again, looking at the book titles, part three is taking control. Right. And here, here you have, again, five or six chapters, basic principles. And, and it's so funny. You, you, you call that or how not to be that parent. that parent. I really like what you did here because you speak peace. Yeah. And, and that's so important. In my experience, I've been a homeschooler and I've been a private school teacher and I've worked with public schools a lot. And in my experience, there is a general fear that sometimes becomes hostility between teachers and parents. Can mm -hmm. you, can you address what those principles are or can you address yeah. the relationship between parents and teachers? Yeah. Well, these are just basically good principles of um, relating to other people. I say, number one, don't be afraid to get involved with your kid's life. Your, their school life. If you've got a kid in school, I think a lot of parents are afraid of that. They're afraid somebody's going to yell helicopter parent. And then, you know, they'll be condemned for their, for their poor parenting technique. I say, don't be afraid to get involved. Don't be afraid to talk to teachers. Don't be afraid to suggest alternatives, but 
here are some basic principles. Mm. Number one, before you go into the classroom and start talking to the teacher about a problem, get involved. You have to make an effort to help before you start offering alternatives. See, that's Follow. just beautiful. That's just you know, beautiful. This goes for churches too. Um, uh, and, and husbands and wives. And husbands, <laughs> I yeah, mean, this is... This, Human this echoes and echoes and echoes in, in my experiences on both sides. I imagine I frustrated teachers when I was a parent. I'm, I know that as a teacher, I was sometimes frustrated, although, you know, in my experience, the parents were awfully wonderful. But, yeah. but, if, but if they do something helpful and actually try to understand, mm-hmm. right, that's so valuable and so respectful. In fact, I wrote in my book, uh, right next to the, you say the way forward strategy one, do your research to demonstrate your own dedication, mm-hmm. not to educate the teacher. Yes. And I wrote next to that respect. I mean, yeah. respect the teacher. Yes. Respect. Well, and getting involved, you know, whether you're offering to do a bulletin board or sharpen pencils or be a monitor or provide snacks, whatever says to the teacher, I know that what you're doing is important. I'm not a problem. I want to help. I want to support mm-hmm. your effort. Um, that is the only basis on which you can then go into the, go to the teacher and say, listen, I've got a concern. What you first, you've got to demonstrate that you're, that you are in sympathy with the enterprise and that, you know, the teacher has a hard job to do. Then you can go to the teacher and say, look, here is a concern. But even when you do that, when you go to the teacher and say, here's a concern, you have to do it in the right way. Number one, you always go to the teacher first. It is appalling to me how many parents go straight to an administrator without ever talking to the teacher. So infuriating. You always talk to the teacher first. If that doesn't work, then you go up the ladder, but you never start at the top of the ladder. It's easy to understand why people do that because it's easier to not talk to the person that you have a concern about. But, But in the end, it's basically, can I say it? It's cowardly. It is cowardly. We're called to do the hard thing, you know, not the easy thing. The second thing is that when you go to talk to the teacher, you always have specifics and that takes time and it takes effort on your part. You have to log what's going on. You don't just go in and say, my child is bored. What are you going to do about it? You go in and you say, listen, over the past four weeks, here are five different assignments that my kid brought home that he had already done in a previous grade or at a previous, or even done during class. And, and I'm just, I'm concerned about this. So you bring specifics. Something that sounds like an accusation that doesn't have a specific instance attached to it, there's no way to respond to that. Here again, husbands and wives, same thing. And then the third thing is that you always come prepared with some possible solutions. You don't just say, here's the problem. What are you going to do about it? You say, could my child do this separate assignment instead during study hall? And I will grade it myself. Um, I notice not causing the teacher extra work. You don't just present a problem. You come fully equipped to be part of the solution. And I think that if parents could master this, there would never be such a thing as a helicopter parent. You know, teachers would not use that word. They would um, see parents as partners instead. I like that word. You, You listed five titles. I think you found these on Google that parent teachers are afraid of parents. Oh, there were a lot more than that. I'll bet. I'll bet. Um, these are five that I saw ghost parents in mm-hmm. your book, ghost parents, mm-hmm. drama, Kings and Queens, mm-hmm. scapegoaters, mm-hmm. helicopters, and then the most hated on most lists, the special snowflake parent. Right. But you're saying that you can actually be a teammate with the teacher and that mm-hmm. do I safely assume that most teachers would like you to be their teammate? 
Well, you know, I do. Yes, I think you can safely assume that. I think one of the other things I say in that chapter is that the only way to approach a problem is to go into it, assuming goodwill on the part of all involved until it is proven otherwise. Of course, you can, you're going to run into the occasional bad apple. Of course, you're going to occasionally run into a teacher that, you know, is power hungry or one who is insensitive or one who really does have it out for your child. That's why I've got that whole chapter called the toxic classroom. Right. But that's not the majority. And you have to go in assuming that the parent wants, the teacher wants to work with you. Go in with that attitude. It's going to eliminate a massive number of problems right off the bat. Thank you. I think what I liked so much about the toxic classroom chapter is that bullying is, is you know, it's the thing we talk about now mm -hmm. as the crisis. Well, it's among the crises that we talk about all the time in schools. Right. And you deal with that very directly and then have an action plan. And that's that's throughout this book. What you're doing is diagnosing and offering specific things to do, not because you have some magic formula, but because if, like you said just a moment ago, if the parents are willing to do the hard thing, then hard things can be done. Mm -hmm. yep. That's so crucial because education has never been easy. Yeah, I know. I know. And I, and I think that, that our, our, our classroom system has encouraged us to think, um, now let's go back to that. Are you homeschooling or not divide? Either we're doing it all ourselves or we're sending our kids off and we're having somebody else do it. Um, and that's, that's a false line. Mm -hmm. We are always involved. We must always be involved. But we have to be involved in the right way with respect for the other people who are playing an important part in our kids' lives, um, with honesty, uh, with courage, and putting in the effort to do the research that's needed to come up with solutions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, happily, you've made that easier for us because this book is full of research that you've done. And you're a gifted researcher. This is my, my great jealousy toward you is, is you have a knack for research that comes out throughout everything you write and, and I think is very manifest in this book. And very research orderly too. Pardon? I said research is my jam. <laughs> and, and, then, <laughs> and then mine is to sit and think about the research you've done. Okay. Um, <laughs> this is a good decision. So in, in part, you know, the title of the book is How to Take Charge of Your Child's Education. And part three, therefore, really focuses directly on that by being called Taking Control. You talk about tests. You talk about homework. You even talk about things like skipping grades or, or, or parts of a grade. And then you get into things like um, the methods of teaching with a, a beautiful exhortation to teach yourself, teach, comma, yourself. Yes. Then you go into the system talking about its goals. And, you know, and one of the things I like the most about part four that I want to encourage people to read is the chapter on the child's vision. It's very mm -hmm. easy for us to, to see things our way, but what we often forget is how very, very differently children see the world. Yes. I wish we had time to go on and on. This is a book that in my opinion, I, I don't know how to put it. it. I don't like overselling things, but I, I think this is a book that captures um, the situation as well as anything I've read in quite a while and is very, very practical in its diagnosis. Whether you want to homeschool or keep your kids in a public or private school, there's, there's something in here for everybody. And so let me ask you, Susan, as we, as, we, as we end this conversation, if you could summarize this whole book into one sentence and maybe then three subpoints, or if you just want to summarize it, how would you how would you do that? 
what would you mm. like to leave the parents with? <clears throat> Our educational system is a system. Because it's a system, it doesn't fit all kids equally. Because your kid doesn't fit into the system, and this is whether your child is in a classroom or you're homeschooling, it doesn't mean there's something wrong with your kid. It means you've got to interrogate that part of the system and figure out a way to let your child flourish outside of it. Thank you. Thank you. In Proverbs 1, we read that the the man who is blessed flourishes like the tree planted beside the rivers of living water. And that's what we want for our children. And that's what we have by the opportunity. You talk about new set of opportunities. We have an opportunity to see our children flourish widely in, in ways that I think the world has never seen before. And Susan, you're playing a role in that. I can't thank you enough. Thanks, Andrew. It's so good to talk to you. Let's do it again. I'd love that. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer after for years to come try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33% with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market